All right. Good afternoon, guys. This is Brandon. We are recording episode 20. We hit the 20-episode milestone. Pretty uh, pretty impressive about that. Um, to celebrate the 20th episode, we have none other than Brent Bishore on the podcast today. Brent is uh, really is a man that needs no introduction. He is uh, He runs Permanent Equity. Um, used to be called Adventures. It's now Permanent Equity. And uh, basically what we're going to do today is we're going to dive into everything that he's written and everything that his team has written on his website just about what's going on in, with, with the COVID-19 situation, how small businesses are adapting and changing and the um, esoteric issues that they deal with as a small business. And we're just going to go through the process soup to nuts on what businesses can do right now to best suit themselves for um, getting getting out and seeing the light at the end of the tunnel. Um, so, you know, without 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 further ado, Brent, thanks so much for taking the time uh, to come on the show. Glad, you know, hope you're hope you're doing well, hope you're doing healthy, and uh, I'm ready to rock and roll into this conversation. Yeah, thanks, Brandon. I appreciate it. We are we are healthy. Uh, got a little cabin fever, but uh, sleep deprived. But uh, other than that, uh, uh, doing doing better than we deserve. So let's let's do a quick review on just kind of who you are and what you do before we really dive in. So quick elevator pitch for those that may not know you. Um, you know, who is Brent Bishore and what does he do on a day to day basis? Yeah, so I, I live in Columbia, Missouri. I've got uh, a wife and three three girls under six. Uh, so you can imagine um, <laughs> uh, quarantining has been a uh, uh, an interesting uh, life experiment. Right. And um, yeah, so I I, uh, I was the founder and I, I run uh, Permanent Equity. So we are uh, technically a private equity firm, but a very unusual private equity firm. And sort of we do things almost the opposite of how most traditional private equity firms do things. So we acquire with no intention of selling the business. Uh, we typically use uh, no debt in our transactions. And uh, we like to keep leadership in place and partner with people for a, a real long time. Uh, we've got nine companies in the portfolio uh, across the country. So uh, I think we've got offices, uh, portfolio company offices now in let's see, Los Angeles, Las Vegas, Phoenix, Tucson, Dallas, Oklahoma City, St. Louis, Chicago, Atlanta, and Norfolk, Virginia. So nice. really, I mean, uh, coast to coast now. Um, awesome. And um, yeah, I'm trying to think. Uh, there's a team of 16 of us. Um, I am uh, fortunately now one of the least uh, talented people on the team. And um, yeah, uh, what else do you want to know? I want to know how you're navigating this COVID-19 process here. Um, I know I know that, um, you know, Patrick O'Shaughnessy, you guys, you know, Patrick's done an incredible job of really outlining the soup and nuts of permanent equity and in your investment process. And I just, I mean, he did a, an amazing job. And so what I want to do is see if I can supplement that with some more recent developments. Um, and I want to look at some of the blog posts you've put on your website. And we'll start with how to cut expenses. Um, and you, you talk about, you kind of use the allegory of fat, bone, and muscle. And so for those that haven't read that blog post, um, what do you mean when you say fat, bone, and muscle as a distinguisher between different kinds of business expenses? Yeah, so so the certainly we didn't create the analogy. Um, I'm not sure who did, but we you know we, we, nothing we say is original. So you can just you know take that for take that for what it's worth. Um, so fat in our minds when we think about it in the portfolio are things that look we all uh, get a little flabby uh, when we're not paying attention, and when times are good and you've got bigger fish to fry, uh, you kind of let things go, right? Um, you know, fat, if, if cutting that should really only enhance your ability to be faster and more agile. Um, so the analogy really holds that it shouldn't, it shouldn't limit your growth. It shouldn't limit what you can do. 
Um, it really should be a positive to the organization. And I think, you know, whether it's us, uh, our portfolio companies, friends that I have that, that we've had discussions, um, you know, everyone seems to be, when you really get down and look at the expenses, there's, there's some stuff you can cut that just, it, it really just doesn't hurt the organization in any way. Um, so I would say that's fat. I mean, that's the first thing you want to take uh, anytime you're, you're looking at getting leaner. You know, you want to take fat off first. Um, you know, muscle, in our opinion, is kind of the, it, it, it limits the speed at which you can go. It limits the things that um, that you can that you can do from uh, not like sort of the types of things, but the speed at which you can go and do those things. So it's just, I mean, again, the analogy is muscle. If you just you know pull muscle off your body. Um, you're going to be able to lift less. You're going to be able to, uh, you know, you get tired faster. Um, you're just not going to have as much capacity. And so, you know, you can kind of think about this, you know, if, if fat is the stuff that you can trim and really not notice it, uh, maybe they're just kind of nice to haves or maybe that they aren't even being useful. Right. Um, muscle certainly hurts, right? I mean, muscles, uh, you're getting into the area where um, it, you're going to notice it in the organization, but it shouldn't restrict the sort of long-term trajectory of the business. Um, and so you're still going to have the same projects. You're still going to have the same um, sort of dynamics with the organization. You may just have to, um, you know, trim some of the capacity around the organization. And unfortunately, I mean, in most businesses, I mean, some of the, some sometimes it's maybe it'd be applied to, you know, types of machinery. Maybe you're not buying something that you could renew that would, you know, allow you to go faster. You're fixing it instead, right? But most of the time, it's going to be people. And so, you know, when you start getting into um, trimming people from the organization, it needs to you need to really look and see, okay, who who are the people that uh, you could potentially trim from the organization that um, you still love to have them, um, and and they were productive. So it wasn't certainly this. It wasn't an indictment on their skill set or their value to the to the firm. It just they're they're rendered sort of redundant in the current capacity that's needed right. um, uh, in in the environment. And then you start getting the bone, which bone is you know you're, you're sort of you're cutting the structural ability long term to uh, accomplish something. And so you obviously want to cut, you know, fat first, muscle second, bone third. Um, and when you're cutting bone, I mean, you're, you're, you're lopping off whole, let's call it divisions of the company. You're, you're really sacrificing something you know will do well for you long term, but you're having to sacrifice it for the short term gain um, hmm. to survive. And so, you know, I mean, to use the analogy, you know, uh, cut, cut as much fat as you can, um, then cut, you know, as much muscle as you can. And when you get the bone, you've got to be really, really careful. Um, and I think just in general, what we're encouraging our, our portfolio companies to do is to say, okay, let's do a sensitivity analysis of, you know, if, if revenue drops by X amount for Y period of time, you know, what does that look like? I mean, we should be trimming fat regardless. So let's go and do fat layer, you know, regardless of what had happened, we should be doing that, right? Now's a great right. time to, to sort of buckle down, look at every expense, do we really need it or not? Um, and I think that, you know, across every organization, I think that, you know, we found fat we could cut. Right. Which, um, you know, look, in some ways, it's a little embarrassing. In other ways, you say opportunity cost matters. Right. Yeah. And when, you know, things are you, you know, when you're growing companies rapidly, um, you know, there is a real opportunity cost to saying, OK, we're not going to focus on that. We're going to focus on, you know, um, trimming fat all the time. And so uh, I think there's a time and a place for both. And, and we're in a time and a place where um, trimming fat is important. Um, when we start getting into the, sort of the muscle structure, um, it's all about timing and, and, and how long we think this thing is going to last and, and what does it mean to last. And we can get into that a little bit later. Yeah. And then we're really cautioning at this point against cutting bone. Uh, we don't have any company right now where we feel like we should cut, cut bone uh, yet. 
Um, and hopefully we never get there. Um, you know, that certainly is a, is a very painful, um, yeah, it's painful on cutting muscle as well. I mean, look, it's painful all around. Yeah. Um, but you know, you're really going to impede, uh, the, the, the organization term, and, and really you're, you're impairing the value of the organization as soon as you start cutting about. Right. Yeah. And it's, it's something that I saw, um, one of your, one of your good friends, Morgan, Morgan Housel, I think he, he retweeted, or this might've been an original tweet where he said he talked to a business owner and he, and, and the business owner basically said, you know, if, if anybody thinks that a small business can just kind of close down and, you know, cease, cease operations for a while and then just start back up without any hitches, then they're fooling themselves. And it, and it, (laughs) and it, and it kind of goes into this illusion of, you know, if you, if you, hemorrhage your femur off you can't just start walking right after you you know yeah. wake up wake up from surgery but i want to dive into some examples of these and you know you don't you, you don't you don't have to go too deep on these but but in terms of fat what are what are some commonalities that you see maybe across your portfolio companies or maybe across some of your friends that own businesses that you have discussions with where 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 are the common areas of fat that business owners that are listening can start looking in their in their income statement yeah, I mean, I would say the, the obvious ones are really anything that you are paying for that you don't really even want. So, so like if you think about maybe benefits at some of the companies, um, you know, we uh, across every company, we try to be generous in terms of what benefits we offer. And some benefits are more valuable than others. Right. I mean, anytime you're buying something for somebody else, and you're not giving them cash. There's going to be a friction point between what you think they might want and what they actually want. And so, you know, benefits is a good example of, of things that now I'm not talking about cutting people's health care. I, I would consider that almost to be closer to bone than I would muscle. Hmm. And I'm certainly not calling that fat. So don't don't hear what I'm not saying. Right. I'm saying stuff like, you know, uh, gym memberships, perhaps. Right now, yep. you know, people are going to the gym right now. You know, I'm I'm talking about, you know, if you were doing a vegetable, you know, supplementing sort of vegetable subscription service or maybe you were doing uh um, you know, something more frivolous, right? Uh, mm-hmm. that, by the way, could be a very um, thoughtful and kind gesture and, and people could really appreciate it. I think now it's time to sort of evaluate those types of things and say, do you really need them? Um, software, uh, information subscriptions. I mean, this is another kind of key area where, um, you know, is the software really key to the business or is it something that you can sort of nice to have subscription, right? right. Um, you know, I know a lot of businesses that, um, had uh, redundant cell phones, for instance, for a lot of their staff. I mean, do you do you need to have you know two cell phones on part of your staff, or could you use consolidate on a one cell phone? Do you need to have um, you know uh, special software that goes out and finds people's names and contact information, or you know can you do that more manually now? I mean, th- things like that that are sort of nice to haves, but you don't have to have them. Yep. I would say just really, I mean, it's a hard. I mean sort of it's actually fairly easy when you get into a company and you really understand it just to go line by item by line item and say you know is that something you know is that a is a must have uh want to have or you know it would be nice to have it right yeah and i think you know you can categorize things pretty easily and then you, know, you really should just take a take a look at everything that's a nice to have and, and just cut that hmm. and it's almost it's almost like uh you can you can use the analogy of creating a household budget per se where if things get really bad it's you know hey do we need this netflix subscription do we need this disney plus subscription and then just applying that same framework to to businesses and to and to portfolio companies yeah exactly so when it comes to cutting expenses then and you know i'm sure this isn't this is probably one of the you know least least favorite parts of your job i would assume but 
how, how, how important is relaying that information in a clear and effective manner to the portfolio company or to, or to the, to the leaders of that business for them to then disseminate it down? How, how important is that line of communication? And what are some ways that people get that wrong? Where then cutting expenses is seen maybe as hostile or, or just, um, not well, not, not well intended. Yeah. Well, I think so. The, uh, how you do things is, is oftentimes even more important than what actually is even done, mm-hmm. right? Um, and people want to know sort of what's the what's the heart behind it. So, for instance, we're, we're not we're not telling any portfolio company what they have to do. Mm-hmm. It's not it's not what we do at all. What we try to do is try to hold up the mirror and say, okay, here's where reality is. Um, what do you think needs to be done? And how do you think we should go about doing it? And then kind of partnering with them and saying, okay, here's where we maybe see some opportunities. Um, here's where we disagree a little bit with what kind of what you're saying. Um, but we're certainly not going in and cutting ourselves. If you think about it, it's like permanent equity going into one of our portfolio companies. We're not going in and cutting. It is the leadership's job to identify opportunities, to bring solutions to the table, um, and to do that work and to mm-hmm. own it, right? right. Um, and certainly when there are cuts to be made, and, and thankfully – we have not had yet to, to cut in our portfolio. I mean, we've certainly been cutting fat. We've not been cutting muscle yet. Yeah. Um, now, I mean, things get bad enough. The inevitable is the inevitable. I mean, I, no business is built for, you know, a 40 to 90% drop in revenue sustained over any period of time. Right. right? I mean, it's just right. and you got to think about coming out of this thing on the other end, what demand really looks like. Um, but, you know, regardless, like we're not in a position that we feel like we should be dictating anything. Um, we want the people with the most information, the people on the ground who are operating day to day, they're going to know far more. And it would be incredibly arrogant and prideful of us to say we know better than they do about where things should be. Um, but we certainly are engaged in conversation with them about it. Hmm. Right. No, I like that. I like that. It's, you know, boots, letting, letting, letting the boots on the ground do, do the main work um, and just, you know, taking taking a laissez-faire in a sense approach um but still having kind of that 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 open line of communication um i want to i want to shift now you you wrote a memo um on covid-19 and you know basically outlining there's some esoteric problems that small businesses face that simply larger companies don't have to um and you mentioned four of them intermingled financing um or it, intermingled finances, the hiring process, access to capital, and cash reserves. And so these are problems that are prevalent regardless of if there's COVID-19 or not. And the fact that, you know, we we're, we're, we're in this time almost exacerbates these issues. Um, so talk about your solutions that you've alluded to to some of these problems, such as, you know, backstopping payroll, suspending payroll tax. And you actually offered a lot of, um, I don't even, I mean, I don't know if policy is the right word, but you did offer some of these solutions in that blog post. So kind of jog us through your, your line of thinking uh, when, yeah. when, when going through these issues. Yeah. Well, so maybe we could just take a step back and, and, um, and just talk about like, what is it really like to operate a small business? Right. Cause I think mm-hmm. that um, most people, when they think of an owner of a business, they think of like Scrooge McDuck. Right. And they think of like somebody who's just um, hoarding a whole bunch of money and, and you know, this is the super rich. Like that's not who small business owners are. Right. Small business owners are are scrappy. Um, they they basically, you know, for for the most part, have bought themselves a very stressful, slightly higher variation in compensation uh, job. Right. Like that's what they that's what they've in essence done. They've taken yeah. a tremendous amount of risk. 
the, the personal finances and the professional finances are all mingled together. I mean, you know, most often it's, you know, it's either one or two owners of these businesses. And I mean, in essence, there's no difference between their personal, you know, bank accounts and, and the professional bank accounts. And these are not wealthy people. I mean, look, we're all wealthy. We live in the United States. I'm not trying to make a value judgment on that side. And, right. and, and a lot of people who are successful small business owners certainly make a very good living, right? If they're successful, they also tolerate a tremendous amount of risk and they don't have a lot of backstop to that. Um, you know, they're, they're wedged between customers and suppliers, which are often much larger than they are, right? So, I mean, mm -hmm. if you think about being a small business owner, you're kind of like the very light connected tissue between, you know, a customer who wants something and a supplier who's giving you something else. And usually those people are mammoth companies on e either side of you. And you're trying to service kind of a niche within the, you know, sort of in between those two. Yeah. And in times like this, I mean, you just get squashed. Mm. Um, so, I mean, large customers are now telling you, and we've had this happen to a couple of our companies. They're just saying, uh, yeah, our payment terms used to be net, net 30, right? And now they're net 120. Or we had another customer who just said, we'll pay you when we pay you. <laughs> and we said, well, um, okay, if you're going to pay us when we pay us, then we're going to stop doing the work. And they were like, no, you're not. And we're like, uh, come again? <laughs> what, you know, what, wow. How do you expect to stay in the business? Like, hey, that's not our problem. You need to keep servicing the customer, or you'll never get paid. Wow. Right. And so, if you want to get paid at all, you keep you keep servicing us. Right. So, in essence, what we're doing is we're becoming a creditor to to these large companies and allowing them to stay in business. And I think that's what's really challenging. Um, you know, the third point uh, on that I was trying to make was. Professional services and, and sort of the talent access, skill access that most small businesses have is, is, is just poor in general, right? So, I, you know, not to strip this down too much, but if you think about it, if you're really, really, really good at whatever it is that you do, you're typically not going to work for a very small business, right? Yeah, you're typically right. going to go up the ladder, whether it's, you know, the talent within the company or the consultants to the company. Um, you know, I, I don't know many people who say, you know, I want to be the best in the world at what I do and go work in a 15-person small business. Hmm. Right. I mean, there, there are exceptions to that, but that's yeah. very, very rare. And so the the access to talent expertise just makes it very difficult in times like this. You know, people haven't gone through it. They're, they're, they're heck. Gosh, they are so freaking busy, man. Mm. It, operating these small businesses is I mean, I've used the analogy of being a knife fight. Yeah. Right. Or the analogy of, you know, you sort of get up in the morning and you eat glass all day. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's just really, really, really hard. And, and so, you know, you layer in the normalcy of being difficult on top of a very I mean, a crazy situation, yeah. uh, certainly unprecedented in our lifetime. And, um, and and it really is just a powder keg for confusion and miscommunication and, um, and, and, and taking steps that maybe you shouldn't have taken in hindsight and that are fairly obvious. And so, again, a lot of these things are just sort of naturally built into the small business world. And so they have, you know, no cash cushion, right? Very, few, very little cash, you know, that, that, that is being generated and left in these businesses. Um, you know, the balance sheets of the owners that are backstopping it isn't deep. Um, and then you have a lot of these businesses are fairly low margin. Um, I mean, you know, if, if you look at most restaurant businesses, I mean, if you can generate five, seven percent pre-tax net profit margins, you're doing pretty well. I mean, that's, that's, right. a, that's a pretty good business, actually. Um, you know, you take away 10 percent demand in your restaurant and you're you're done. Yeah. Let alone ninety-eight percent demand or ninety percent demand. Right, right. I mean, there's just no way to stay in business. I mean, your cost structure is just unbelievable. So um, anyway, all that stuff being brought together, you know, in order for small businesses to make it through this, I mean, the the two analogies that we have kind of thought about 
Uh, one is prohibition and the other one is eminent domain as being ideas for kind of what's the proxy of what we're doing right now. Right. And, you know, the idea of prohibition is just, you know, you have the government just shutting down an entire industry. And right now it's like prohibition, but for, gosh, almost everything. Yep. And then the other side is eminent domain, which is, hey, I'm going to look, I'm going to confiscate your your personal goods, which in this case, I think would be kind of personal labor or the labor of your company. Um, for the common good. When we, and, and by the way, I'm not I'm not arguing they shouldn't do this. I'm just saying we got to think about mental models that kind of allow us to understand, you know, kind of proxies for what we're doing, so that maybe they can give us some hints on on what we should be doing on the other side to try to help. Mm. And so, I, you know, look, I am um, not normally a fan of government intervention. Okay. Not normally a fan of government assistance. Yep. Um, I think that um, uh, businesses should be allowed to fail. Um, the, the issue is this is not a normal time, and, and the government basically decreeing that you can't be in business has to call for a government solution to that problem. Interesting. And so it, 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 in the sense that, look, it's for the common good. And again, I don't want this to you – know, don't hear what I'm not saying. Like I'm not saying we shouldn't be isolating. I was very early on beating the drum, trying to get you know, government officials here in the Midwest to, to pay attention and listen up, that it was, it was like a real thing. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I, I've been a huge advocate for what we're doing, and I think it's necessary. And I'm hoping we get through it and we can, you know, turn the light switch back on and get back to work. Um, we can talk about the prospects of that and what that looks like. But of that's course. my hope. Right. Yeah. So the solutions that I put forth were, you know, the easy one is, look, payroll tax is, is something that you could just have go away um, in the next round of legislation. It looks like that will be a part of it. Um, you know, I, I said that, you know, offering large loans, uh, low interest rate, long duration loans uh, was kind of the way to go. Um, the government chose to go a little bit different direction and um, and do these forgivable loans, at least in the small business world, what we're talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, so through the, pay, the Paycheck Protection Program. And um, I think those function very similarly. Um, so I mean, what you're trying to do is you're trying to get enough capital into these businesses where they can sustain their payrolls, make it through this dip. Um, you know, sort of come out the other side and restart. Yeah. Um, and then the, the the third really big one uh, was uh, essentially backstopping payroll. And so the idea was if you, let's say, paid, it's almost like a copay, like an insurance copay, paid 80% of uh, payroll, then, you know, the owner still doesn't have the, the desire to, you know, keep paying the 20% for people that they don't want. Exactly. But they can keep people on staff that they couldn't otherwise. And so that actually is, is being taken up by a couple of people right now in the Senate as being an idea. And that's actually the path that, that Europe went down, um, which is fascinating to see. I mean, we came out with a memo doing these policy recommendations, and it was like two days later, uh, you know, a, a big chunk of Europe actually went down a very similar path to kind of what we recommended. Yeah. Um, not saying that we had anything to do with that at all in any way. It Brent, was just coincidence. But, <laughs> we all know, we yeah, all know that we all know that you've got you definitely pull pull some strings globally geopolitically. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. Yes. Uh, You've yeah, risen to that uh, echelon. Yeah, something like that. Um, uh, not a chance. But uh, but anyway, so I think that um, you know I um, it has not been perfect. There's been plenty of messes uh, you know along the way. It's been it's been hasty uh, you know how this has had to come together. Um, but you know I think that, that the government's got the right idea, especially in the small business world, to um, help backstop these owners, help you know keep people employed, um, and then just really allow enough capital to be there on the restart that it makes sense to be able to get these businesses back off the ground. Um, you know, the, the quote that Morgan uh, put on Twitter a couple of days ago, was it yesterday or today or yesterday, I can't remember, whenever it was, um, that, that actually came out of a conversation. I don't think he would mind me saying this. I had a conversation with me. 
Oh, but he okay. and I talked at length about what, what the issue was of, of starting and stopping these businesses. Yeah. And I mean, the conclusion that, that you have to come to is if you think that you can just turn a light switch off, you know, have the business shut down and then restart, it's just, you'd never run a business. Hmm. Um, and, you know, you have supplier issues of restarts, you have, um, you know, employee issues of people leaving. I mean, I'm not talking about like, you know, a week or two, I'm talking about like three or four months. Yeah. Right. So if you try to mothball a business and restart after three or four months, like the people are going to be different. The skills are going to be different. Um, the suppliers are going to be different. The customers are going to be different. Um, you, you know, your pipeline of, of sales is going to be different. You have a working capital problem. You have a lag in receivables, all those things that come into play. And so, you know, really, I think that the government's doing what it needs to right now. And, and it seems like that, you know, thank goodness in some ways that it's an election year. Um, and Trump's given every indication that he will do what it takes to kind of get through this. Um, yeah. And the, the political will on both sides of the aisle seems to be there. Um, but I think that, you know, in general, doing the right thing, I think there'll be another at least one more round mm-hmm. of uh, government you know, intervention. And, um, you know, after that, gosh, I hope we can flatten the curve and get out of this mode and go back to some semblance of, of normal life. I, you know, we can talk about what that what that actually looks like. But um yeah. Yeah. No. Certainly better than what we have now. Yeah. No. I. I. You. You mentioned the prohibition, and 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 I actually want to spend a bulk of the time discussing that just really, really awesome piece. Um. You know, on prohibition, eminent domain, and 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 the path ahead. But before I do that, I do want to touch on a few things that you mentioned, just to kind of circle back and get your thoughts. Um. You discussed um kind of learning from past proxies in terms of prohibition and using you know using these as mental models. Now, what do you what do you think in terms of companies preparing for the future and, you know, setting themselves up for the next five years? And the only, you know, the, the only way I can kind of relate this, at least in the public equity space, is, um, you know, assume that the company makes no money, you know, 2021 or, you know, 2020, 2021. But over the next, you know, three to five years, if you have a long term time horizon, you know, some businesses will still do OK. And what are what are some things that you think businesses are going to take from this event that will, you know, I don't want to say forever shape how they do business, but really change how they do business going forward, regardless of if there's another pandemic. Yeah, I mean, look, every crisis, uh, you, you come out of it with some positives, right? There's, there's some silver linings. And I think that there, there will be those. It's probably a little early to tell right now, honestly, what those positives are going to be. I mean, I've heard people say, oh, now work from home is going to be um, the dominant mode of uh, of work, and I'm uh, you know no offense to those people, but I'm I'm ready to not work from home anymore. Um, <laughs> I very much pine for my office. Um, yeah, and so um, I, I actually think there could be a, uh, a a sort of backlash in the other direction, which is uh, going into the office and dressing up could become uh, you know sort of stylish again. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so, almost almost as a second um, order effect, really. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So um, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of unconvinced right now, um, you know, about the sort of everyday work styles uh, and what, what it will mean for so, you know business going forward. I think technology and, and sort of digital gatherings is going to be a, a pretty dominant theme. I think you'll see a lot of niche communities pop up um, and a lot of better tools around those niche communities to, to allow for, you know, meaningful interaction digitally. Um you know, in terms of the scientific community, I mean, you know, somebody brought this up to me yesterday. Never in the history of the world has every uh, sort of scientific barrier been brought down and collaboration been nearly at the same 
uh, pace and with the same intensity hmm. as it currently is, which is really encouraging, and exciting. And, and you think what you know might come out of this is, you know, a really golden age of collaboration amongst the science community, which hmm. would just be fantastic. I mean, yeah. just you know, you, you, could, you could sort of dream and fantasize about, um, you know, ending cancer and longevity and things that things that, you know, a lot of people have talked about for a long time. Yeah. Um, personalized medicine. But, that you know, just there's been so much um, competition amongst, you know, scientists from different countries and different sort of tribes. And I think everyone's coming and uniting around a common enemy now is a really positive thing. Hmm. Um, in terms of, you know, the ideas that companies, you know, you can sort of forecast where things are going to be. I, I think there's some obvious ones, um, but it, those probably aren't even worth talking about. I mean, I, it's going to be really hard to understand. It depends on what this thing really looks like. I mean, you know, the, the reason why it's COVID-19 is there's been 18 COVIDs before it. Yeah. Right. And and, you know, there's going to be a COVID-20 and a COVID-21. And look, you know, the more that you look back and study, there have been, you know, plagues, um, uh, you know, throughout history. And so I don't think that this is something that's not going to happen again. Uh, hopefully we go through another period of sort of peace and it doesn't happen again for very soon. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I, I think that people's psyche is certainly going to change. I mean, you know, ultimately what matters is productivity and savings rate to the economy, right? So like right. the more productive you can be, um, the more you'll have to, to spend, but the more you choose to save, the less you spend. So I think that, you know, those are kind of the two wedges on either side that you really got to consider in terms of long-term behavior. I can tell you my, my wife and I's personal spending is down 75, 80%. Yeah. Um, you know, we don't carry, you know, thank, thankfully we live in Missouri, so we don't carry a very big mortgage Our cars are paid off, things like that. So I mean, we have a lot of, you know, sort of the income is discretionary in terms of what we do with it. Right. But, I mean, our, our risk tolerance and our desire to go out and spend is, is, you know, other than a bounce house for the girls so they can get outside and, you know, not be screaming inside and crying all the time. Uh, that's more of know, an investment that, for you though. That's a, that's oh a personal God, investment. Best, best $250 I've ever spent in my life. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, um, but, you know, but I do think, you know, in all seriousness that, um, it's going to be quite a long time before I go and sit down at a, you know, nice restaurant and have a leisurely meal with tables close, you know, close by me. Hmm. So I think, you know, there's going to be a period of time where it's adjustment. Um, you know, I think that travel in general is going to be an interesting one. Uh, you know, um, uh, Alex Danko, I think, was the one who, who said that, uh, you know, travel in many ways has been a signaling mechanism for how serious you take a relationship. And I think that is true to some extent. I think yeah. that uh, dispersion of, of sort of intentions and outcomes will be even wider after this, meaning that um, you will, if you really, really, really want to impress somebody, you'll go and fly to them. But I think that normally where maybe we would have flown places in the past, uh, I think you're going to be more reticent to do so. And I think that people are going to understand. And so you're going to have to find alternative signaling mechanisms for seriousness. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I don't know what those are going to be yet. Uh, but, you know, I do think that we're in this thing for a lot longer than just a few months of interruption and that there's going to be this you know, sort of wintry period and a new normal that just, you know, just sort of re- we roll into. And I think it'll be pretty obvious when we do. But I don't really know yet how behavior will change and then ultimately will be reflected in in all the things that, you know, uh, sort of the knock on effects of those. Hmm. 
Hmm. Yeah, and I wonder, you know, just just kind of going going to your point about the seriousness of travel, um, it makes you wonder if events like you know the Berkshire annual meeting or a lot of these company festivals and, and gatherings, like if, if 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 maybe we've seen the last of such events, at least you know for the time being, um, as, 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 as we shift as a culture. And, um, you know, I want to, I want to ask before, before we get into the viral prohibition and the eminent domain, do you think there's any businesses that just won't survive, whether it's, you know, certain subsectors of industries, um, or niche products? Do you, do you, do you have any gauge on that or is, or is, or is it just way too premature to even ask that question? Well, I mean, I think there's some obvious ones right now. I mean, if you're in, if you're in travel, if you're in events, um, you know, uh, it, you're in a tough spot. Um, there's, there's no doubt about it. I mean, you know, I think there's going to be a material change in taste around those activities. And I think it will depend on, you know, what type of thing. So, you, you know, it's easy to, with a broad brush, if you're going to talk about, um, you know, destination resorts, I think that there's a different demand curve that will, you know, be generated as a result of this for, let's call it, you know, sixty to eighty dollar a night lower end hotels versus you know five hundred plus dollar a night resorts. Hmm. So I think you got to think about those things differently and not group them into sort of one lump, which is you know hotels and resorts. Hmm. Um, you know, I it, it, how often we gather and in what size of events we gather in. I think it's a really interesting question, and I, I disagree. I think we're probably gosh. Depending on how, you know, if we, when a vaccine comes out, it you know, depends on kind of how the recurrence is um, of the virus. But I mean, I, I would say we're probably 18 months to three years out from having large scale events come back in any sort of meaningful way, right. uh, which is really disappointing. I mean, that's, 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 you know, concerts and sporting events and it's almost impossible to wrap and, your head around. Yeah. Really? Yeah. It's really hard. So, I mean, I think that, look, if, if you're, if your business is in one of those areas um, and you're, you know, putting on events across the country, I mean, we've looked at plenty of event production type companies, uh, companies that, that rent stuff out for events. Um, I mean, look, you're just, you're, you're going to be hurting and hurting mm-hmm. for a long time. And I think that there's just going to be a material change in, in demand for those products. Um, you know what that looks like. I don't know though. I mean, I, again, I, I think that there will be winners that come out of this and people will make lemonade. Um, but it's still really, really early at this point. I think we'll know more depending on the, how long this lasts. I mean, there was a stat that I saw that, um, if, if revenue dropped from most small businesses, they have at most, uh, three months of runway. Right. So most, most small businesses, greater than 50% of small businesses would be out of business in less than three months if revenue dropped dramatically, which by the way, that's what we're experiencing. Yeah. And so if you think about that, like, you know, think about wherever you live, wherever you drive, you know, walk around visually in your head and think about what shops are there and picture 50% of those not being there anymore or on the restart, you know, there's a fundamentally different thing. So maybe your favorite restaurant, you know, the chef's different, the wait staff's different, maybe same name, maybe not. Right. Yeah. Um, But that type of thing. And so, there's going to be a lot of turnover and a lot of, you know, destruction slash creative destruction. I don't, I don't know, you know, where that line's going to be, but it's going to be a lot of, a lot of turnover in the economy that um, is, you know, even above sort of the normal turnover. 
Yeah, and it's actually a perfect segue into into the idea of of of, of prohibition and kind of still pulling at that thread of that mental model. And one of the things you mentioned is these companies during during the prohibition, you know, call it these these distilleries or breweries or um, you know alcoholic dispensers. They didn't just shut down completely. They actually, you know, to use to use kind of a kind of a Darwinism aspect, they, they, they adapted and they created new products. They created different things. And, you know, I think, I think we're going to see something similar like that. And, um, you know, do you think, do you think that that's just survivorship bias, kind of the idea of these companies recreating themselves? Or do you think that that's almost a systemic thing where that is a figure or that is a part of capitalism where either you adapt or you die? Yeah, I mean, no, no doubt in, in the long run, adapt or die is, is for sure. Uh, and that's what capitalism should be. That's the best part of capitalism. That's why I, you know, I cringe at the thought of the government keeping alive a lot of businesses that should have gone out of business. Right. Um, I mean, or, or keeping shareholders, uh, you know, in place that, that should be wiped out. I mean, mm-hmm. look, if you if you leverage your business to the moon and took the risk to do so, um, you should have consequences when you, you know, when when bad things happen. Like, yeah. I, don't, I don't think that's the. You know, that, that's not necessarily what we're talking about here, though. I think that the challenge is, uh, unlike prohibition, so prohibition was, you know, the demand was still there. Right now, the demand's just not there for a lot of these businesses. Hmm. So, you know, prohibition, like if you, you know, a lot of these breweries, for instance, would sell, uh, you know, malt syrup, right, which could easily be turned into bootleg beer. Um, and so, you know, they, they kind of got around it. Is that creative? Yeah, that's creative, you know. Um, but they kind of always, I think, knew that, uh, or at least had a strong inkling that they were going to um, uh, survive this and that, that you know, it was going to be reversed at some point. And I think that, you know, well, uh, the unfortunate part of what we're, what we're going to see, I think, is a consolidation. And so this is where, you know, I, I operate in the, in the small sort of the micro end of the PE market, you know, for private companies. And I think this is where um, bigger companies will have an advantage. I think there's going mm-hmm. to be um, a movement towards a lot of the customers that used to go to a local mom and pop uh, restaurant uh, will unfortunately not have a choice of that restaurant uh, and go to a chain. And I think there's a lot of consolidation amongst retailers. You know, the, the biggest will get bigger, I think. And yep. uh, they have the infrastructure and the financing and the, the skills and the, the talents to survive, uh, you know, something far worse. Um, and so I think that that's, you know, ultimately, you know, you're going to see a, um, a bifurcation of outcomes where the smaller the company is, the lighter weight it is, um, the less a chance it has to survive. And of course, there's going to be green shoots that come up sort of, you know, after this is over and there's going to be new things started. And, um, you know, I, I wouldn't bet against, um, you know, an American sort of entrepreneurship uh, the optimism side of it either. But I yeah. do think that there's going to be a consolidation, uh, at least temporarily, uh, probably for a three to five year time period into larger organizations. Yeah. And I, you know, I guess, I guess the optimist in me wants to, wants to view this as like a controlled forest fire, right? Where you have to, you know, scorch the earth to get rid of all the dead, um, debris and stuff that's actually with, with, withholding these new green shoots, like you were saying from coming to the surface. But I almost think that that's too optimistic and, 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 and that's really not what we're dealing with. We're actually burning the soil that's supposed to grow these green shoots is maybe what's more realistic. 
but that's yeah. just that's just that's just kind of me trying to fight my optimism and my real <laughs> and my and my realism at the same time. Um, I wanna I wanna sure. shift now to eminent domain, which which is another mental model that you alluded to in the article. Um, for those that don't necessarily know what eminent domain is, maybe it's the first time they've heard about it. Um, what is it, and why is this an important way to view what's going on in the current and future um, business economy? Yeah. So, so eminent domain is the, is it's a legal construct that basically says that the government can confiscate and compensate when they do this, but confiscate against your will uh, property that you have for the greater good. So you'll see eminent domain used a lot for building, you know, power lines or for um, you know building roads, right? Where you have to like, I mean, where do you where do you build the road? Well, you got to go through somebody's private property to build it. Well, how do they get the property? They they take it. They're not, they're not going and negotiating typically with, with homeowners right. um, or with, with landowners, I should say. So this is a, this is a concept that, you know, you can, um, you can take private property, you can, you have to compensate fairly for it. And then, uh, and then, you know, it's for the greater good. And so I think in this context, the, the eminent domain uh, analogy is, is, is quite prescient in the sense that it is uh, the government saying, Hey, for the greater good uh, health outcomes, uh, for, for everyone, we're going to confiscate your labor in essence, right? Um, and we're going to tell you to stay at home. We're going to tell you not to work. We're going to confiscate that labor. And in, in exchange, we're going to compensate you for that. And so, you know, you have checks going out from the government to, to people, uh, to individuals. Um, you know, you have this uh, money going into small businesses, potentially backstopping payroll. So these are all mechanisms to sort of compensate, comp- compensate, excuse me, Mm-hmm. for the um uh for the eminent domain that's sort of taking place. Right. Right. Got it. And do do you think and this is this is kind of going back to the whole government intervention and government non-intervention. Um you know, what are what are the specific dangers of doing something like this where the incentives, you know, maybe maybe well-intentioned but then the outcome of those incentives um you know, IE disincentivizing work and then maybe you know yeah. maybe maybe having issues with that like how do you how do you balance that as 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 you know maybe 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 a country or just an individual going going through this yeah i mean i look i think that once you provide what amounts to universal basic income for a while to people um that's going to be sort of normalized and i think that that uh, you know i i don't know how much that that genie's out of the bottle um you know so to me, that's kind of what I worry about. And and by the way, I'm not a policy wonk. Like maybe, you know, UBI ends up being a great tool that we can use in certain circumstances. I would hate to see um, modern society unravel uh, because we got a little taste of forbidden fruit and we can't ever go back. Right. Mm. Um, yeah. So, you know, I, I think uh, from that standpoint, I think that it could be it could be dangerous. Um Look, beyond that, I mean, I think it's just such an unprecedented problem that it really does call for an unprecedented solution. And I think that, you know, the government's doing, uh, look, the government's never going to do a great job, right? Uh, part of what makes our, our system forms of government um, effective is how difficult it is to get things done, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, it's certainly, <laughs> you know, it, it, it's intentionally high friction. Yeah. And, um when you look at the current situation, I think that there's a lot of political will to get things done. And I think it's functioning the way it should, which is when it's, when it's, you know, when it should, something should get done, it gets done pretty quickly. I mean, maybe not quite as quickly as we thought, but mm-hmm. uh, pretty quickly. And when things shouldn't, you know, they, they, it's really you know, up for debate and, and uh, difficult. So, um, 
but yeah, I mean, I would say those are kind of the, the sort of the very broad things. Um, again, it's just really early. It's hard to tell. Yeah. And actually before, before we get into, um, you know, kind of, kind of the situation where, where, where it is now and really, really understanding you, you broke it into kind of three phases, um, which, you know, under, under the state of the economy, you've got the lockdown, um, the winter of uncertainty, which I really want to dive into. And then, and then, and then the new normal, but before that, because you mentioned, you know, governments doing these, doing these things and, 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 and enacting these initiatives, I, I, I want to take the time so that you can kind of talk about your initiative at, 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 at permanent equity, which is, um, I believe it's called safe Harbor. Correct. Yeah. That's correct. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I've actually, I'm actually going to read it right here. So, um, you know, Safe Harbor is you're looking size of investment at least three million bucks, um, and you know you go and you go into the cost um, for 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 the business owner, the types of companies that you're looking for, and I just think this is you know first I think this is just a great um, kind of olive branch that 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 you're extending to these small and medium sized businesses that really need it, and so I think you guys are doing a tremendous good, um, you know doing doing something that. Um, maybe public government can't necessarily do, and you're doing it in the private space, and so I really appreciate that. And I just kind of want to give you the floor, just talk about what what the safe harbor is, and what you know, what what kind of interest you guys are fielding from that already. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, look, we're we're um, in business to serve small and medium sized businesses. I mean, that's that's our our mission and our goal. And um, there's a lot of uh, situations that that businesses find themselves in, which they couldn't even have conceived of three or four months ago. I mean, heck, I couldn't even, if you told me that stuff that's come out of my mouth in the last couple of weeks, you told me <laughs> I would have said it six months ago, I would have laughed at you. And told right. you there'd be no way. Um, and so look, I, I, we have a lot of empathy. I mean, everyone from, from permanent equity comes from an operating background. So we have no traditional investors on staff. Um, no one from private equity is, is no one's ever worked in private equity um, on our staff. And I think that what that does is it provides us with a lot of empathy. Um, you know, we're not spreadsheet jockeys, right? We're, we're operators and we get how difficult it is. And we get that, I mean, through our own portfolio, as well as prior experiences, understand how difficult uh, these, these sort of operating conditions are. And so, you know, we, we wanted to um, do well by the businesses and and do good uh, for everyone, including for our investors. Um, and so the Safe Harbor program was a, a signaling to the market that historically we had been really focused on majority buyouts. So we buy between kind of 60 to 80 percent of the company is kind of our target range, and uh, then hopefully have the leadership roll forward and be heavily incentivized as well. And then you know build great relationship long term, operate the companies, hopefully all do well together. Um, this is our signal that that we were open to more creative and unusual um, opportunities. So that maybe mm-hmm. more temporary, but we want them to grow into long term relationships. And so you know that may be the form of you know us buying an option to the business, us providing some debt to them uh, into the business. Maybe it's um it's a royalty situation. I mean, there's a lot of different tools in the toolbox. And all we wanted to say is, hey, we, we've always been creative in our deals. Uh, you know, how do we get the, the parties to come together and and create, you know, something that would be helpful uh, for, for everyone. Um, but beyond that, uh, you know, we really wanted to um, just signal to people that we're here to try to be helpful. Mm-hmm. And, and we've had a lot of conversations. I mean, uh, you know, we're, we're over 100 easily at this point. And, you know, a lot of them, unfortunately, are, are situations where there's just not a lot that we could do for them. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you know, a lot of people who, who've reached out and said, you know, hey, uh, you know, we've got this demand's gone off the cliff. We're not sure when it's going to come back and we just need more and more money. And what we tell them is, 
exhaust every government. We're not at a substitute for government um, programs right now. Like right. that's not how we see. We're not like we're not in competition with the government. Right. Um, we tell them is go and get you know exhaust every government option. And then, you know, if you still feel like that there's an opportunity there and you just need to kind of get bridged over a situation um, and hopefully want long term partnership as a result of it. Right. So we want to be value add beyond the dollars that we put in. Um, but it always got it's got to start around some financial transaction. And so, um, yeah, it's been a lot of really interesting relationships we never would have uh, seen otherwise. Um, we've gotten to meet some really cool people. Um, it's been good. I mean, I, I think that, you know, personally, uh, for us, it's been challenging to hear all of the, the difficulties people are going through. I mean, I think some days we get to the end of the day and just emotionally exhausted from hearing yeah. just um, really, really tough situations that, you know, people who were on top of the world two months ago and expanding and reinvesting their businesses, you know, they just they don't have much there left um, already. And yeah. so, um, but yeah, that's, so that's the program and that, that's what we're trying to hopefully accomplish out of it. You know, I'm actually looking at a tweet that you sent, um, was it five, five days ago? You said, started 92 new conversations since we launched Safe Harbor last week. And it just makes me wonder, you know, how do you have 92 conversations, sleep and watch Tiger King at the same time? I just don't understand. <laughs> I just don't, I just don't understand well, how you do it, Brent. <laughs> well, let's, let's, let's be honest here. Let's just, uh, um, uh, I... So I, I truly meant what I said. Like I, I we have a team that's incredible, um, yeah. and and they're they're doing most of the work. Um, I mean, look, I try to I try to be helpful. I try to chip in, um, but we have such good specialists on staff now that that really understand what they're doing and, and are far more talented at the thing that they're doing than I am. Um, it, it would be insane for me to try to take part in all those conversations. So so you know, uh, on the front lines of of that initiative, Safe Harbor. I mean, Emily's been a champ. Mills, Greg, Clayton, uh, all those people have, have really taken the lead and, and had those conversations. And so um, I am, uh, I'm, I'm certainly freed up to uh, have other conversations and, and to get, you know, sort of focus in on the ones where we can really make a difference. And, uh, and then, you know, spend most of my days just, uh, you know, doodling and uh, watching Tiger King. So. <laughs> yeah, no, I want to, I want to, I want to dive right back into this three part um, looking, looking out and kind of looking at this new normal. We've already really discussed this lockdown segment where, um, you know, you, you mentioned it here in the article, there's no, you know, there's no playbook here. You're basically saying, you know, cut monthly expenses as low as you can conserve cash, take advantage of every local and federal government initiative, you know, everything that you just said. Now, you know, let's let's dive into this what you refer to as the winter of uncertainty, and take us take us through you know what you think that's going to look like, and um, you know how long that could last. I know you said between eighteen to twenty three months, at least you know for the or, or, or eighteen months to three years. Maybe that was for the vaccine and returning to a new normal. But take us through that, and then in particular, um, you mentioned this idea of creating a mothball plan, which is something I haven't heard of. Um, so I'm just interested yeah. in you you expanding on that idea. Yeah. So, um, well, so this idea of winter is, so when we get out of like the intense lockdown, um, there's going to be this period of uncertainty. And I think this is just, um, the, the, the idea of winter is it's just going to be, it's going to be a cold environment for businesses to operate in. And there's going to be a lot of uncertainty. There's going to be a lot of fear. There's going to be a lot of, uh, very conservative behavior. Uh, and, um, it, it's going to be, it's just going to be a challenging environment. And so, how long does that last? You know, I think that uh, a really a worst case scenario for me is that um, we have rolling lockdowns over the next call it, you know, 18 months to 36 months. 
depending on when a vaccine is 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 found and we can talk about you know when when that maybe could come about but um you know that that uncertainty is just hey if you're a restaurant for instance right and let's say that so everything opens up you go back to work and you say okay we've got we've got enough capital to hit restart one time is that when you pull the trigger like do you do you mm. open up as soon as things you know uh i don't i don't know yeah i think that if you do you get back open for let's call it six to eight weeks you know maybe even six months who knows yeah. and then you go lockdown again you don't have any capital left to to sustain yourself yeah and so i i think you could see a lot of businesses kind of come out of this uh give it their shot uh we go back into lockdown and it wipes out an entire new tranche of businesses um, um and i think that would be really tragic and i think that by the way we could have rolling lockdowns for like i said a long time and i think we could go through maybe three or four or five of these over a period of time and so you know it just makes gosh how you know it makes operating just unbelievably difficult i mean yeah. you know, if you're in construction you start a project and you got to put pause on the project well then you know how long do you have before you know you, you can go back out there no one knows i mean it's just it is a nightmare of coordination um to try to, to try to come out of this thing and so i just think that that interim period before we sort of have a permanent solution whether it's therapeutic or whether it's um you know a vaccine uh, I, whatever it is i, I think that that's going to be a period of uncertainty and fear and it's just going to be a really tough environment where there's going to be a material um preference difference uh with demand amongst consumers hmm. and do do you think that that is 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 the worst case scenario where we have a lift from this lockdown and then there's a new spread and everybody has to close down again do you think that's our worst case instead of this longer term maybe it's a maybe maybe it's a less frequent lockdown maybe just one or two but it's longer in nature do you think that's a better scenario than you know trying to trying to get the economy going again just to shut it down again just to get it up just to shut it down well, I mean, if we're going to talk about worst case scenarios, I think the worst case scenario well, is everyone the dies. virus up, up, <laughs> up mutates, right, yeah. uh, in, in severity, and uh, there's there's no recurrent immunity, yeah. and, um, you know, we live in a post-apocalyptic hellscape. But, yeah. you know, barring that, I don't think that's a likely outcome. <laughs> uh, um, but, yeah, I mean, I, I don't – part of this is if you if you told everyone – I mean, in theory, if you had – there's, there's a coordination problem here. If you said, in theory, everyone in the, in the country, in the world – has to go into their homes and stay there, you know, in a hermetically sealed environment for three weeks, and then you can reemerge and like we'd be done, completely done with this thing, right? Yep. It would burn itself out. It would not transmit. We'd come out of this thing. Everyone would be healthy, go on living our lives, restart everything. The problem is it's just that that coordination problem. You just can't do that, right? So I think what we're faced with is, um, you know, Singapore went through an, in- an intense period of shutdown. And then, and, and they thought they had it under control. They opened things back up and now it's shut down again. So it's like exactly what I'm talking about in Singapore. Exactly. Right? exactly. Yep. yep. And so I think that we're destined for that, unfortunately, in the United States, which is you're going to have, and, and by the way, so Singapore is very concentrated, small territory, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, if you, you got to think about the United States as being, you know, call it four or 500 Singapore's. Right. If you want to think right. about population centers. Yep. And so you really got to treat like treating New York differently than Chicago, which is different than St. Louis. Right. You, each each um, geography has its own uh, oddities. Right. I mean, h- how dense is the population? Um, how much natural sort of um, communal friction is there? Right. Um, and so you're going to you're going to see the virus, you know, be very different in how it, it expresses itself in New York versus even San Francisco, right? Which we've seen or Seattle, yeah. right? Yeah. 
um, and very different in St. Louis versus Columbia, uh, where I live. So I think that we've got to treat each one of these geographies as being its own sort of independent hotspot. But then the questions are becoming, if I can freely travel and if you sort of encourage travel between those, I mean, how does that work? And I mean, do you yeah. isolate? Do you require people to isolate if you go into a hot zone? You know, there, there's all kinds of these questions, which almost it's like treating the United States as being uh, a bunch of little different countries, right? You almost need like a passport to get into it, and you got like a protocol when you come out of it, right? Mm. Um, that and these are all fun. just things that, yeah, I mean, it's just none of it's like, but the problem is there's no easy solutions. Right. Like that's like we're, we're, we're at the point where it's going to be painful no matter what path we take. Yep. And so, you know, I mean, a, a, a better case scenario is the thing um, down, uh, down evolves in severity. Yep. And, um, you know, we're able to bend the curve enough and keep it under control. And we just encourage social distancing. Like, I don't know. It's going to be really weird the next time somebody tries to shake my hand. Like, I'm not <laughs> right. sure. Like, that's coming back. Yeah. Like, like at least for a long while, right? Like, yeah. I think that, you know, uh, waving or maybe foot tapping or something, I think that, you know, distancing more is going to be something. Um, you know, I think about um, even something like, you know, my church. I mean, like, I, I go to mm. a pretty large church here in, in Columbia, and, like, it is it is super important to my life to be with those people and to be yeah. in community with them. But how you even do church is going to change, I think quite a bit. And yeah. so, you know, the idea that you're going to, you're going to pack into rows and put, you know, a thousand people in the same room and sing. Uh, I'm not sure that's going to take place for a long time. Mm. And so, you know, trying to rethink everything, but not lose the essence of what you had is, is a, you know, it's a really interesting problem. I like I actually really you know trying to trying to rethink everything without losing the essence. I I I love that quote. And uh, you know just 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 speaking of church, just even even from a personal experience, I was sitting there you know because every 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 sermon's online these days, right? So 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 I'm over you know I'm over watching watching uh, watching the sermon on Sunday, and I just got to thinking you know I wonder if this is gonna you know and maybe maybe the church is almost like a microcosm of of, of potential new business innovation. But if it's just going to be easier to start planting these these viral these uh, the, these online churches where now you don't have you know this massive startup of you know all these startup costs of getting a building you know buying all that land um finding people to you know come come to you now with 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 youtube you can start up your own church and just do online donations like that so i wonder if you're going to see this you know this proliferation of of church you know these online centered even online only businesses going forward as a as a consequence of this it's possible. I mean, here, so here's the thing, though. It's, 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 so that sounds awesome, right? You're like, oh, it's never been easier to start a church, right? Yeah. Not sure that's something that, that I necessarily always want to be the case. Um, there's, you know, the obvious risk to start their own church very <laughs> yeah. you know, quick, quickly and easily. Um, yeah. So, um, but I think beyond that, there, there is something that, um, you know, as somebody who's in, in a faith community yourself, like, you know that watching online is much more you can be a consumer of that than being a participant in it. Yeah. And I think that's one of the things that we're struggling with right now in my house is, you know, how do we continue to be a participant in the community of our church mm. as opposed to just being a consumer like, oh, I like that sermon. I like that piece they put out. That was yeah. an interesting podcast they did, yeah. like, which feels very um, consumer mentality. And I think it's just the opposite of what um, a faith community should be. It should be a, a body of people coming together in self-sacrificial service. And so I think that that to me is where you get into these really challenging like, oh, well, if you just look at it as a bunch of people got together and did a thing, then why can't you just take that and put it online? In practice, it's kind of like the same thing of 
you know, why did I go and travel with somebody two months ago to have dinner with them as opposed to just popping open Skype or, yep. you know, Zoom or whatever and, you know, saying, hey, here, cheers, you know, hey, let's talk. <laughs> well, it's because there's something about being in person that is just fundamentally different. Now, it doesn't yep. always have to be that way, but there just really is that connectivity that's just, just different. And I, so I think, you know, how we come out of this, I, I'm not convinced that, um, I'm not convinced that in-person relationships will become less important. I think that the maybe the number of important in-person relationships become uh, scaled down, but the intensity of in-person relationships significantly increase. Right. So and, you'll, you'll sort of have a smaller group of people in which you do life really intensely together, yep. like have meaningful, deep, deep, deep in-person relationships with them. And then you have less people that you sort of are acquainted with. Yeah, it almost it almost goes back to you know if we're if we're if we're gonna you know go back to the you know tribal days where 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 you have a small tribe and you know whether that's your family and a close friends but you know you stay within that tribe and you don't necessarily venture out of that I think I think that's something and you know it also goes back to what you were talking about where you know like you even said you know you're kind of clawing to get back into the office um, and I think that there's this bifurcation of potential outcomes where you know, we might actually see more importance of face-to-face and person-to-person communication. Um, maybe, maybe not to the volume it was, but like you mentioned, the intensity. Um, so it's just, it's yeah. just, it's just so interesting. The amount of, the amount of divergences that could happen over the next, you know, year and a half um, with, 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 with so much we don't know in business and in the culture of business and, you know, how, 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 how we all respond to that. Um, I want to, I want to go now into uh, what 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 you talked about saying the V recovery is dead, um, or you know maybe 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 you didn't say it like that. Maybe I sensationalized that. But take us take us through the idea of you know this might not just be a normal V recovery. And for those that don't know what a V recovery or V bottom is, um, kind of explain that for them. Yeah. Well, so there's just been this in the past these trends of you know sort of what does the recovery look like? Is it a V? Is it a U? Is it an L? Like, you know, what, what is, what is the shape of it? Right. And all it means is, you know, you came into this thing a V is, you know, sharp down, sharp up, right. Coming yeah. out of it. Um, you know, I, I joked in one of the pieces that it's like a reverse check mark recovery, right. So like the right <laughs> side of the V never, never quite gets up to the same level or, or, you know, time horizon matters. Right. So when I, I'm being hyperbolic and I say never, I'm saying in a short term, it's not like, you know, you came in at, you know, whatever the base rate was at a hundred and now, you know, sort of for the sustainable future, it's called the next couple of years, maybe even up to five years, instead of it being at 100, you're now at 70 is the new normal or 80 is the new normal, right, in mm-hmm. terms of demand for yeah. the product. So, you know, I, in terms of what this thing looks like coming out the other side, no one knows. All I can say is that the amount of – so people uh, – the unemployment number is going to come out this Thursday. I think it's going to be as breathtaking as it was the week before and the week before that. Right. Um, I think you're going to see a lot uh, – I think that the number right now is so understated because we've had clogs in the system. I mean the unemployment number only only shows people who have actively filed for unemployment. Exactly. And right now in a lot of states you can't even file for unemployment because the system's all clogged up. So, I mean, you have all these issues. I I, I don't, you know, I said this in one of the pieces that I unfortunately think that 20% unemployment is a foregone conclusion at this point, which would be completely unprecedented. Oh, it'd be unbelievable. Yeah, and and I think that we could push 30% unemployment, which would be Great Depression. I mean, kind of what peaked in Great Depression. And so what does it look like when, you know, a quarter of your neighbors uh, are out of work? Um, We don't really know. I mean, there's a lot of implications for that. And so 
you know, the, the idea has been in the past that, okay, unemployment happens rapidly and then reemployment sort of can happen not quite as rapidly, but you can come out of it and sort of get that recovery. Um, I think that there's just a lot of destruction. Again, you know, it's not just creative destruction, it's just destruction that's ha- taken place where mm-hmm. you have coordination problems, you have stop-start problems, and I think there's just going to be a lot of stuff to work through and sort of to get the, you know, the flywheel spinning again is going to take time. And so, you know, my guess is that the new normal that we come out, like, let me let me be clear on something. I think I am a huge believer, and I would bet everything on the long-term recovery and that we come out of this thing stronger and we experience a, a period of flourishing coming out of this thing and that we will be resilient and entrepreneurial and like the United States, I would never, I would not want to be anywhere else in the world than the United States. And I think that we are incredibly well positioned. So right. like, I agree. Don't take anything that I'm saying as being like down on the United States, yeah, down on the future, down on the planet, you know, anything like that. Like I'm, I'm a huge long, like long-term optimism but short-term pessimism, like I do think this is different. And I think that we are experiencing something that is so fundamentally different that that the answer, the short answer is no one knows. I'm thinking (laughs) you're a little pining when when no one really knows. But it doesn't feel logical to me that this thing would snap back um, and that people would just go and start buying. Like, Like, think about buying a new car right now. Like, I can't imagine, like, many people are like, man, you know what the the first thing I'm going to do as soon as we get you know, done from this lockdown is I'm going to go drop a bunch of money on a highly depreciating asset. Right. Like, sounds awesome. Yep. Right. Like yep. that's just not I, I, like now are some people going to buy cars? Of course. I'm not saying no one's going to buy a car, but they're not going to be buying at the same level where, hey, everything's good. I got plenty of disposable income. Like, what do I want to spend it on? Man, a new car would be really nice. Wouldn't that be fun? Yeah. Like, it's just not the same thing, you know, vacations and like, mm. you know, certain types of like kind of mid-tier luxury goods. I think there's going to be a, a big washout in a lot of this stuff. And by the way, I don't think it's not, I mean, not necessarily that bad. Like, I think that it could be a awakening of a large, you know, chunk of the population that maybe there is a better life beyond just buying another car and going on another vacation. And like, mm. I mean, certainly my wife and I, I mean, if we're speaking personally, like the things that we appreciate now are very different than we did two months ago. And the things we yep. took for granted two months ago, um, you know, we're kind of ashamed of to be honest. I mean, I think that we're living this out on a day-to-day basis of being sort of ashamed of how we had been behaving and how we've been living. Yep. And it's really kind of woken us back up to, man, like we, we had, we had it so good and we have it so good. And by the way, like we're grateful for the basics. Like I, I, I am so grateful. Like I can't tell you how thankful I would be to be able to sit down and have a conversation and a glass of wine with one of my friends and have a nice dinner. Yeah. Like, I used to take that for granted. That used to be multiple days a week, right? Yeah. For work or for pleasure. Yeah. And so I think we become so anesthetized to sort of all the gifts we've been given. And so I'm, you know, I'm hoping that a good thing that comes out of this is just a refocusing on um, what matters and, um, you know, hopefully uh, it's a big boon long term. So, Brent, why does it take, and, you know, this, 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 this may be going philosophical here, but why does, why does it take, events like this to get us to refocus on a personal level, um, you know, to get us to get us to refocus on things that really matter, like taking taking business aside here. What what are what is it about us as humans that, you know, we need this kick in the pants like this hardcore kick in the pants and maybe you know maybe maybe this covid is something way worse than just a kick in the pants but but you kind of get what I'm saying. Why does why does it take yeah. such a strong um you know, movement or just, you know, such a strong push for us to realize what really matters. 
Well, I mean, if you really want to go philosophical, I mean, I can, uh, I, I think that, that the reason why I'm a Christian is because I think it explains things uh, historically better than anything else. Like it, it mm-hmm. makes sense of history better than anything else and predicts, you know, future behavior better than anything else I've ever seen. Um, and I mean, there's sort of two competing doctrines, like I shouldn't say competing, two doctrines that really kind of interlock together, the doctrine of sin and, and the doctrine of the Imago Dei, right? So we're made in the image of God. Uh, we're made to be creators. Uh, we have this ingenuity. Um, it's this beautiful imprint that, that God has made uh, into us. And then I also think that it's been marred, right, by this doctrine of sin. Um, yeah. We are fallen. It, we're broken. Um, and so why do we uh, need a kick in the pants? Why do, well, we need to kick in the pants every day because all of us are trying to be God. Uh, we all worship something. Yep. And functionally day to day, even though I believe that, uh, uh, you know, Jesus is my king, uh, I functionally worship my work and I worship my family and I worship my health and I worship, you know, food and drink and, um, you know, all kinds of stupid stuff. Now, that doesn't mean that those things are bad. It just means I shouldn't worship them. Right. It's yep. Taking a good thing and making it into something more than it should be. And so, um, you know, look, God wants us to enjoy a great meal. He just doesn't want us to be focused on a great meal. And I think that, you know, what what tragedy, unfortunately, what what it does uh, as a benefit, though, is it, it refocuses outside of ourselves. And I think that that's something that I've felt certainly in my life over the last month is it's sort of a, a pulling uh, of myself out of myself, if that makes sense, like mm-hmm. and being focused on other people around me. And are they OK? And is my family OK? And, you know, how can I serve my my, my, my wife and my kids and my community and the people in the businesses? And so I think it's, um, you know, it, it's a it's a refocusing on a lack of control. And, that hmm. I'm, you know, that, that I do, I'm not in control and I never was like I had the illusion of control. Yeah. Um, and it's it's like it's like you woke up from a dream, right? I mean, Kanye actually uh, um, has been has been you know quite vocal on this. It's like he was interviewed and they said, you know, uh, so you became you know a believer, and he said, yeah, it's all like I woke up finally. Yeah. Like I woke up from a dream. <laughs> right. And I right. think that you know, um, to his credit, I think he's you know he's encapsulating something that's, that's beautiful there, which is um, you know this tragedy and everything. You know, it is showing all of us, you know, certainly me included. Uh, how little I control I actually have and how grateful I should be for the gifts I've been given. Um, and that maybe um, we're being called into something much greater and um, more beautiful than just making money and spending it and trying to scrap and claw and fight to get ours. Um, mm. I think there's maybe something beyond that. I love that. I love that. And, um, you know, I just really, I, I really can't add anything to that. I know sometimes I like to try to add things, but I, I've, I've got nothing to add on that. I think, I think, I think you hit the nail on the head. Um, I want to, I want to kind of circle back and kind of close up here. I know I've taken up over an hour of your time. So, you know, I definitely appreciate that. Um, you know, I know, I know that you're super busy and I, I you know, it, it's, it's actually one of, one of the questions I want to ask you is, you know, just, just, just given the nature of, of, of your business and kind of of your role, because, you know, pre-virus, most of your, you know, most of the time, at least from the investment side of the standpoint, is looking at we'll call it pitches or slide decks or just you know looking at different companies. And I know, um, you know, you've you've gone through thousands of companies. I think I think like every year or something, don't you go through like thousands of companies? Um, Correct. Yeah. 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 So, a lot. Yeah. Exactly. So my one question is, you know, given given what's going on right now, do you have any time? Like, 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 how do you how do you allocate your time between looking <laughs> at new ideas and, you know, just being a father and a husband, but then also dealing with all these potential fires? Like, how do you how do you go about allocating time in 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 your day? Yeah. 
So uh, I don't think I do this very well. Um, so just, you know, sort of confession. Um, I try to do the best I can, which is uh, I try to be mindful of um, my family, certainly right now. I mean, I try to make my girls breakfast. I try to eat lunch with them every day right now, which is really nice. So we're having like kind of three meals together yeah. uh, a day right now, which is really, really cool. Um, get to spend, you know, I have, I have a five and a half year old, a three and a half year old, and then uh, almost uh, one and a half year old. And so wow. um, it's That's very, awesome. very unusual stages. Um, and <laughs> getting to see a lot of change and be with them is, is really a, a cool thing. Um, you know, I try to get up, um, you know, read and pray and, and get some work done before they get out of bed. And then, um, you know, I kind of just take it as it comes. Uh, honestly, we're doing a every morning um, uh, executive team uh, at, at Permanent Equity is doing kind of a stand-up meeting together and uh, trying to make sure we're all on the same page and we're all moving in the same direction. And then sort of that kind of ripples out to the rest of the organization. Um, so other than that, I mean, it's, it's trying to leave more time open. And I think this is Something that, that, that I heard somebody say uh, a while back, and I can't remember who said it, is just ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. Hmm. And it's interesting because I feel like that when I am at my worst is when I am hurried. Yeah. But it doesn't necessarily mean that, I, 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 like, that I've got a lot of stuff to do. I just feel hurried. I have this like internal drive. I've got to be doing something. I've got to be consuming something. I've got like I can't sit still, right? Yeah. And I think that that, that is really – painful, uh, you know, psychologically and destructive in terms of um, how it manifests in productivity. And so I, I've mm. really been trying to focus on sort of ruthlessly eliminating hurry um, and just allowing the data unfold. I mean, there's always plenty to do. I'm never lacking anything to do, but yeah. giving space to allow conversations to go a little longer than maybe I'd, I'd cut them off in the past, right? Yeah. Um, you know, I've been uh, I've been going on you know longer walks and trying to do more like um, you know walking conversations so things like that that I think um, I wasn't able to do in the past but I think you know look I I ha the team we have is incredible um, and I can't I just can't say it enough it's like how proud I am I mean it is a weird weird time yep and everyone's stressed and personally it's stressful professionally it's stressful. We've got the portfolio companies that, that are, are um, completely understandably in need of, of help, right? And just a guidance and assistance and have conversations and be supportive of them, right? And right. so there's just everyone on the team's pulled in a lot of different directions. I'm just really proud of how people have come together and um, been thoughtful and hardworking and responsive and, and just, and, and also, though, living their life. I mean, I think that's the thing that we've, we've talked about a lot internally is just keep living your life. Like this doesn't stop living your life. Like keep living your life. You know, there's still good times to be had. Um, there's still things to be done. And so do what you can, right? Like move the needle in areas you can move the needle on. And then just, you know, always be calibrating, um, but don't get too far ahead. And I think this is something I, I tend to, uh, as a personality type, like run down all of the different rabbit, rabbit holes I can, uh, yeah. try to go down every path and then sort of come back and say, okay, well, if this happens and this happens and this happens, and I start getting myself in these spin cycles where I can, I can waste hours and hours and hours considering consequences that have very little chance of actually happening. Hmm. And I think that, you know, never meeting a problem halfway is, is there's something to that saying. Um, you know, I'm trying to wait on problems. Like, I, I think hmm. that's something that, that, that I'm also doing. So all that to say, how am I spending my time? Um, it's haphazard at best. Um, but I'm trying to, um, you know, give myself enough breathing room right now to be thoughtful and to engage in meaningful conversations and not be not be hurried. 
Yeah, no, actually, you know, part part of that resonates with me too because I struggle with this idea. Um, you know, part of part of the, I guess, and I don't even know if you want to call it a downside, but if you if you if you surround yourself with really like-minded people that are passionate about what they do, you can fall into uh, a trap where you think like you said, you always have to be doing something where, you know, for me in the public equity space, it's, you know, if I'm not reading a 10K in annual report, or if I'm not reading, you know, a latest investor presentation, like someone else is doing that, and they're getting, you know, they're getting ahead. And it's always this like chase mentality, like, kind of, kind of like you mentioned, and it's, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting now that we have time to, um, you know, a lot of people don't have to drive to work anymore. So that's, that's, you know, for some people an hour each way, give or take that, right. that, 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 that they now have back in their life. And I just, I just think it's, 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 it's nice for me as a, as a self-reflection where, you know, taking long walks, like I don't have to always be trying to learn as much as I can. I mean, I try to listen to as many podcasts as I can, like Patrick O'Shaughnessy's Planet Microcap, you know, I mean, all the ones, sure. all the ones you've been on. It's like, but there is something to be said about just being and you know, walking and peaceful and not feeling like you have to have to be, you know, doing something quote unquote, um, every second of the day. Yeah. Well, I think, look, I, I think that one of the things we have to say too, is, is there's nothing wrong with being a voracious learner yeah. as well. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. I think that when that turns into your idol though, I think exactly. which I certainly have a, t- a tendency to make that my idol, right? Like I got to be consuming. Cause like, wh- where do I get my self-worth from? I get my self-worth from, you know, I know more than somebody else. I've worked harder than somebody else. It's always comparative. Yep. And I think that's just a really dangerous thing. Like you should absolutely work your ass off. Yep. Like you should for sure work your ass off. Like, like rest isn't fun unless you've worked hard before it. Right. It's like the, it's the seasoning, it's the salt, right. Yeah. That, that makes rest nice. Like you should work hard and rest hard. Right. Yeah. So like, there's nothing wrong, wrong with hard work, but I think that when we get into this mentality that there's just always something more and I'm never doing enough, no matter what, mm. it, it really ends up becoming um, a, a function of control and pride. Right. I mean, you yeah. got to believe that, what you're doing really matters. So you're in control and you got to think that if I don't do it, somebody else is not going to be able to do it. And like the world's not going to keep spinning. Right. Yeah. And I think that's just, that's really dangerous. And believe me, I'm saying this, you know, I'm speaking from uh, 37 years of experience in, 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 in doing this myself. So um, I totally get it. Yeah. I mean, this last half hour has been just straight therapy. So that's the whole point of this podcast. This is straight therapy. I know I'm, I'm, I'm getting so much from it. So, 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 so I know others are going to as well. Um, you know, let's, let's, let's just kind of wrap up right now. I know, you know, it's getting, getting towards, towards dinner time. Um, and so I'm, I'm, you know, I don't, I don't want to hold you up too much. Um, but where, where can people go to find out more about you? I mean, I know you're, you're very prolific on Twitter and, you know, you've got some of the funniest tweets, some of the funniest, uh, you know, just gifts on there that I've ever seen. So where can, where, well, where, where, you find it funny. You're, you're, you're the person, you're the person who finds it funny. That's <laughs> yeah. So, I, I so, so where are you? That's all that matters. Yeah. <laughs> so where uh, can, where can yeah, people so find I'm, you there? I'm on Twitter. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm at, I'm at Brent Beach on Twitter. I mean, I have like a love hate relationship with Twitter. So sometimes I'm on there a lot and sometimes I'm on there very infrequently. Um, but you know, you can, I, I typically, I have open DM, so you can DM me. Um, certainly connect with me there. Um, yeah, I mean, I, available through the permanent equity website. If you've got something you want to share or if you've got something we want to take a look at, or if I can be helpful, um, reach out through the permanent equity website. Um, we, we see all that stuff. Um, we get it all. Um, yeah, I try to be available. So um, happy to try to connect wherever. And um, yeah, it's been really fun being on the show and um, appreciate you taking the time. 
Yeah, I got I got one more question for you though before you go. Oh yeah. So and, right. yeah, so so I've got a, so I've got a, I, I, I ask this to everybody. And if you could have dinner with one person, past or the present, doesn't have to be finance related or business related. Uh, who would it be and why? We've had you know Jesus, Abraham Lincoln, Albert Einstein, Nikolai Tesla, um, just just to name a few. Um, so kind of where who would who would that be and why? Oh my goodness. I, I have, I have no idea, man. There's so many people. I mean, I feel like that getting, getting to read, um, you know, it's like there's just an endless amount of people out there that have, you know, are, are sharing all of their, all of their works with you. I mean, I, yeah, I mean, it's such a, it's such a hard, it's such a hard question. I mean, uh, Blaise Pascal would probably be a person that I would, that I think okay. would be fascinating just because yeah. um, he's clearly like one of the greatest minds in the history of the world. He was a, he was a believer that had a, he had a very dramatic um, conversion experience um, hmm. that he didn't actually write about or talk about much during his life, but uh, um, was sort of found out, uh, you know, after his death. Um, and so, yeah, he would probably be one. I mean, um yeah, he, he he would certainly be near the top of my list. It's a good awesome. question. I'll have to I'll have to think more about it. Yeah, awesome. Nope, that's 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 definitely a new one. So, Brent, thanks again for joining the show. Um, I look forward to talking to you again. All right, hey, thanks a lot.